Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. All improvement is mediated through changes in your relationship with perceived effort. And there are two things you can do. You can either increase your perceived effort tolerance, so you're just able to dig deeper and suffer, suffer more, or you can reduce the level of perceived effort that you feel at any given level of output. That's how all the physical stuff works. We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run, always chasing, never stopping. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Chasing Excellence. Patrick here, just recording a quick introduction to today's episode. Today we have uh, writer, coach, nutritionist Matt Fitzgerald on the show. I was not able to join Ben from this conversation, but very excited to introduce you to Matt. You may recognize Matt's name in an episode we recorded a couple months ago. Ben recommended his book uh, titled, How Bad Do You Want It? And called it and now a must read for his athlete. So we wanted to have Matt on the show to talk a little bit more about his work, about that book. Um, and I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. You can learn more about Matt at mattfitzgerald.org. He's the author of, to my count, 25 or 27 books, uh, including How Bad Do You Want It? So do go check him out if this conversation is intriguing to you. Here's the interview. All right, Matt, super psyched to have you on the show. Um, you're your your work your um your book how bad you want it is um was something i've i've shared with all of my athletes it's um it's like a must read now and it put a lot of language the stuff that i've been working with with my coaches for quite some time um but it's it's a cool interesting take so as opposed to what we see in a lot of sports psychology books where it's like set goals and it's kind of like that outside of training aspect it's like what you do like in your living right. room your approach and your stories. I mean, first off, the book is so captivating. I know it's not your only book. I know you've written how many, four or five books? Uh, more than that. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, and I know that you, 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 have, you're not just limited to this psych psychological aspect as well. But um, it's certainly a thing that we talk about a lot. It's the thing I talk about with my athletes a lot. Um, and this um, psychobiological model. Um, can you just, maybe we'll start there. Cause I think it's a framework for a good leaping off point. Sure thing. Yeah. So, uh, that it's a mouthful, isn't it? Psychobiological. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the term was coined by, um, an Italian exercise physiologist named Samuela Marcora. Um, and it's based on actually, you know, he's an exercise physiologist, but it's actually based on, um, an older psychological theory known as motivational intensity theory. And, uh, and Marcora's interest is like, why do people stop when they stop? You know, if you have, especially in the endurance context, like if you have athletes go until they can't, 
like what what is the can't and for for decades it was assumed you know just because you know scientists tend to privilege the material the, the body it was assumed that some kind of you know catastrophic you know physiological event occurred you know like just you know levels of blood lactate that the the, the muscles could no longer function Marcora's like, no, no, no. <laughs> People just quit. <laughs> you know, it's so much simpler than that. And and he didn't just come out up with that idea out of nowhere. Like for the longest time, uh, scientists could not find what that hard limit was. They had all these candidates, but when they actually tried to test, you know, is it glycogen depletion? Is it, you know, you know, a thermoregulatory breakdown? None of these things could ex- explain it. Basically, anytime athletes actually did quit, they were fine. Physically, like there was no physical reason they had to quit, and and so Marcora based you know his psychobiological model on this theory of motivational intensity, which you know it was meant to apply to general psychology, but Marcora's advance was just to apply it to the exercise context. And what he said was, you know, based on the on this theory, people go into any difficult task with a a fixed level of motivational intensity, which means they're only willing to put in so much effort or suffer so much to achieve a goal. And if in the pursuit of that goal, you know, one of two things will happen, either they'll accomplish it or they will exceed that what's known as potential motivation. Um, so it, it, you know, for the endurance athlete, you know, if you get 23 miles into a marathon and you're like, I did not sign up for this, you know, I knew it was going to be hard, but this is too hard. You know, you, you may slow down at that point just because it's, it doesn't feel worth it. Uh, and you may actually feel like you have encountered a hard physical limit, but it, in, except in rare cases, uh, you haven't. So uh, this is like, obviously it's the, the mind over matter, mind over muscle um, aspect to, you know, the mental toughness component to it, which is why I'm so fascinated by it. How much of this, so if we were to take this to the extremes, it's, it's, it's essentially saying it's all mental. But as you said, like glycogen depletion, whether it's lactic buildup or whatever it is, how much can somebody actually work through, right? So if somebody actually gets like stress fractures or somebody like, is that there is the psychobiological model basically saying like the body's going to follow the mind. And like, if you don't, if you train the mind hard enough, well enough, efficiently enough, I don't know what the right words are, that those breakdowns don't occur. It's. Because at, at some level, it seems to me like, I don't want it to be true, but I, be like, I feel like at some level, there has to be some sort of physical breakdown. Is this saying that, th- no, yeah, it's not physical and like literally your mind is the mechanism that controls the physical? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's nuanced, right? So take something like um, a short sprint, like, you know, you know, the 40 meter dash, 40 yard dash, you know, that football players do in the combat and whatever. Obviously, like there's no pacing element right. there and fatigue is not a limiter. You're going all out from the start. But what if you extend it from 40 yards to 100 meters and then from 100 meters to 200 meters? If you keep increasing the race distance, you're going to get to a point where in order to reach the finish line as quickly as possible, you can't start the race with an all out effort. And in fact, you can't be going all out until maybe you're, you're within 40 yards of the finish line, and then you can let it all hang out, whatever you've got left. So, you know, that's what, that's what distinguishes a, a sprint from any type of, 
endurance thing. And it really, you know, that, that threshold is pretty short. It's like anything above about 40, 45 seconds, you have to pace in order to, so pacing is done by feel. It is done by perception. So perception of effort really rules any paced type of exercise bout. And that's just the fact of the matter. Like, you know, obviously um, data can help, you know, if you've got a watch telling you how far you've gone, how fast you're going, you can key off that, but there's been you know a lot of science showing that it doesn't really matter, especially if you're experienced. Um, you do it by feel, and so you're you're basically limited by feel. If you you know if you run to go back to my marathon example, if you cross the finish line of a marathon, and maybe you've run ten marathons and, and that's your best one ever. There's no way to look back on that race and guarantee that you couldn't have gone any faster, be, just because of the nature of it. So, you know. Anyone can let it all hang out when they see the finish line. So that's really when, you know, an endurance uh, test becomes a sprint. You know, you, you so sure you can be you can be limited by purely physical factors at the very end of anything. But but fundamentally, um, anything that is you know even remotely sustained um, is you're limited by perceptions. So. Love that. We talk about perception on so many different facets here, um, right down to the cellular level to like, you know, um, life fulfillment, happiness. Um, but certainly it carries so much weight inside of the endurance world and in our sport. So it matters even more so in our sport than it does in most track and field um, or cross country endurance events because our events are always unknown. Every time we're entering an event, it is a different event. So there's no way of truly knowing your pace because it's truly a new event. So for someone to say your um, maximal sustainable pace, your lactic threshold is at this wattage, this minutes per mile, this speed is absurd because it's a totally unknown. So what we ask our athletes to do all the time is to come really in tune with that feel, that perceived effort of exertion. And you have this really beautiful metaphor, which is the firewalker. Um, I don't want to steal the thunder because like that's the page that's in my book that literally is like that's the one dog-eared page that is like so right. powerful that um, – can you kind of walk through the, the firewalker analogy? Yeah. I mean you know, the, the science here can get you – know, I'm not a scientist myself. So I, I need these metaphors to make it understandable to myself and I, I figure a lot of other people – so I'm trying to like you know boil down the science to a, a metaphor we can all relate to. Not that we've all firewalked before, <laughs> but but the idea is that you know <laughs> when you start any type of um, you know max maximal performance test, um, it's like doing a firewalk of a fixed length, and there's a wall at the end of it. So the wall represents your goal, and the wall also represents your ultimate physical limit, and. So you start the firewalk, and at first you're like, that's hot, that's uncomfortable, but you keep going because you can tolerate it. The further into that walk you get, now that, that pain that you're feeling from you know, the cold, hot colds on your feet, that represents your rising level of perceived effort. You know, no matter what intensity you're trying to sustain, the longer you sustain it, the more uncomfortable it's going to become. So you're walking along, walking along, trying to reach that wall that represents your, your final physical limit. At some point everyone jumps off the coals. Like no one, you know, what I'm saying is any, anything that's like an, an endurance test by, uh, by, by nature, you can't reach the wall. Um, so the, the, but, but, you know, so the wall is actually fixed. I mean, if you could re reach it, that would be at the end of the story. You would never improve because the wall is the wall. Um, but, 
but that point at which you jump off the coals, that's uh, that's mutable, which it's a limit that is kind of fuzzy. Um, all kinds of things can allow you to, to that really becomes the task as an athlete. You're trying to close the distance between that perceptual limit when you jump off the coals and that unreachable final uh, physical limit that that, in fact, you'll never get to. And, and, the, and the, the goal then beca- of training then becomes um, creating coping mechanisms to allow you to stay on the stay on the coals long that as an endurance athlete that ultimately becomes the the goal right how long like what are the coping mechanisms and whether that's more volume or more threshold training or more mental work that's right. is that is that kind of the the thesis the hypothesis that all this training yeah. then becomes just coping yeah uh you know uh, uh, a helpful way to look at it is that all improvement is mediated through changes in your relationship with perceived effort. And there are two things you can do. You can either increase your perceived effort tolerance. So you, you're just able to dig deeper and suffer, suffer more, or you can reduce the level of perceived effort that you feel at any given level of output. That's how all mm-hmm. the physical stuff works. You know, if you start off as a couch potato, you train for eight weeks and you know, on day one, running an eight-minute mile feels like the hardest thing in the world. And after eight weeks, you can hold a conversation at an eight-minute mile. What's happened there is because you've increased your physical capacity, an eight-minute mile feel, feels easier. So you can run more of them, or you could go faster at what was previously you know, an uncomfortable effort level. So even, even the, the stuff that you think of as purely physical is mediated through perception of effort so that, you know, if you got fitter, but you, it didn't, if, but things didn't feel easier, you couldn't actually use that increased fitness because it would, because it would not feel easier. But of course it doesn't work that way. Yeah. I like that. Um, that gives a little bit more context because I think there's this confusion and particularly in our sport, probably more than others, because CrossFit is like, you know, you've seen the YouTube videos where it's just like, it's like, go till you're, you pass out and you're puddle on the floor. And that's not what our sport is, but there's a big misconception about it. And I think that what a lot of people do is they have the first piece of what you alluded to, which is um, try to push into the pain cave, right? Like get there and how long can you stay here and can you move farther? So once the coals are searing, that's where it all happens. But I like the second aspect to that because it gives credence to what all endurance athletes know, which is training at lower intensities, which what you said is like, at this intensity, what you're trying to do is maintain the intensity and through exposures, you're going to drop the perceived effort. It's not necessarily just moving your tolerance for perceived effort. It's also, um, so give a real world example for me. I might, might not be following along with this. Um, if you can run a, if your PR is a six minute mile, the only, there's more than one way to improve your PR other than just running at race pace. It's not all about just running 13400s or even 125 or 115400s. You can hang out at a 7 minute or even an 8 minute and go longer and what you're trying to do is over time lower the perceived effort a rate of exertion from say a 4 5 or a 6 at 8 minute mile to a 2 or a 3. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it's, you need, you need more than one tool because, you know, the concepts, you know, once they're properly explained, they are pretty simple, but 
what a lot of people want is they want they want one one tool to be able to do it all. Oh, I just got to be tougher. And yeah, you need to be tough, <laughs> but that's not going to, you know, that's not going to get you to the promised land. So speaking of tough, like how, what, what are the, what would you, how would you define toughness or mental toughness? What, is there a difference between the two? You know, I, I always prefer, I mean, there is such a thing as mental toughness, but I think a lot of people conflate mental toughness with mental fitness. Mental fitness is my preferred term for the full toolkit. And, and sort of, so mental fitness is the envelope and mental toughness is one of the ingredients. And, you know, it's the one that gets all the attention, but, but definitely, you know, in my work as a coach all the time, I, I deal with athletes who they're tough enough, but they're not smart enough. <laughs> and, you know, you see it with, with the ones who especially they want, they want working harder to be the answer to everything. Yeah. There's actually kind of a laziness there. You know, it, it's like, I, I don't want to have to figure this out. I don't want to have to adapt or be flexible or learn. I just want to go, I want to fall back on toughness no matter what the problem is. So that, that's a little lazy. Like, again, you need to be tough, but that's not all you need to be. Can you um, give a little more context? I love that, Matt. I love, like, love as a coach, love that because I see it all the time is the answer is just work harder. And I'm always trying to get people to, um, to your, your words there is like to smarter training, smarter racing. Can you give some um, examples of that? What does it mean to be a smarter athlete? Because that might be, ha, some people might look at that as an oxymoron, you know, like there's the sure. dumb jock. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. The smartest people I know, I know are athletes. Love that. So yeah, what, one concrete example. Um, uh, so back in uh, the summer of 2017, I, I spent the entire summer with a team of professional uh, distance runners in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I, the idea was kind of an experiment. Like I'm just like this middle-aged amateur runner and I'm just throw myself in the meat grinder with these pro athletes for 13 weeks, like pretty much doing everything they do that I can handle. And over the course, so I'm with these athletes every day. And th these are people trying to go to the Olympics, right? And I've never seen so many athletes bail out of workouts. Hmm. Uh, there was one guy on the team. He's finished seventh in the Boston Marathon, 209 marathoner, Scott Fobble. And he, he bailed out of an interval workout one day. And uh, I, I asked him, like, what happened, man? He's like, well, you know, my sinuses, I got the sinus thing. And I know that, uh, you know, if I, if I quit now, I'll be able to do Friday's workout. But if I just, you know, pushed it through to the end, I would feel better about today, but then I might lose a week. Um, that is smart. And it, it's, it's not as easy as it sounds like, you know, the amateur athletes I coach, they, 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 they would have a harder time making that call because they don't have the confidence. They're like, oh, if I can't finish this workout, then I'm not as fit as I, as I thought I was, or maybe even I'm not as good at running <laughs> as I thought, or I'm not tough or, or like all this stuff that is, it's not really rational. Um, it's easy to make that decision for someone else. Oh, you should bail out, live to fight another day. But when it comes to ourselves, emotions get uh, into the mix and, and we tough it out, which is not, not always the smart thing. All right. Um, gosh. So I can resonate. So I just had that conversation with one of my athletes. We, we started up a little bit Academy here where we have a, a half a dozen of the best in the world training with us as well. And one of the athletes was grinding through a workout. And 
I had the exact same conversation. It was like this idea, this mentality of I will never quit a workout is the way it's an amateur thought. That's the way amateurs think. Right. So I love that idea yeah. of that's smarter. Um, what about in terms of, because again, in, in your world, um, I think this is kind of like a foregone conclusion, but in ours, this is fairly new um, or maybe it's like not as um, commonplace is, can you talk a little bit about things like, um, like pacing? Like you said, anything past a 30 or 45 second effort, which if you're running a, for our athletes, that would be a 100 or a 200 meter sprint, or you're doing a, um, um, you know, some sort of like super quick barbell cycling type thing. But once you get towards a 500 meter row, a 400 meter run, Fran are one of our workouts, anything, even in that 90 second or above, it takes a certain level of control. It takes a certain level of smarts. What is, yep. what does that look like? And, and, and why is that the case? Yeah. To your point, um, you know, there's really fascinating research that was done involving cheetahs, which obviously mm. they're hunters on the African savanna. They're, they're runners, right. And they, what do they hunt? Antelope. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so biologists have like studied like their hunting habits and found that, um, they have a sense of pacing. So, um, they, they will tend to, they, they're able to judge how fast they can go, how fast the antelope can go, how much ground they have to cover and what the likelihood is that they'll be able to catch the, the, the antelope without giving up too much effort. And what they found was that, um, that their longest um, successful hunts tended to be that they, they they knew when to give up a hunt, and, and the younger the younger cheetahs did not. Mm. So the younger cheetahs would have more more failed hunts that lasted longer because they didn't know when to give up. Which is just it's not a good survival thing because you're wasting energy, and then you know you end up exhausted and then and then hungrier, but you didn't get your food. Um, but the thing, the thing that a cheetah can't do, and also, you know, why, why do, why do, why does horse racing require a jockey? Because neither cheetahs nor, nor, or horses or any animal really other than humans can judge abstract distances. So, you know, if, if you line up again, to go back to my, to my, um, marathon metaphor, when you start off a 26.2 mile road race, you can't see the darn finish line, right. you know, like like a cheetah or a horse could absolutely not, you know, you know, the cheetah has to see the antelope <laughs> or, or at least smell it. But, but, you know, we, you know, if, if through familiarization, we know, you know, how long that is and, and then how long it's going to take and how we have to pace ourselves. And there's, it comes through experience, but there is a forum. Uh, I mean, it, the same reason a horse can't do it is the reason a really dumb runner can't <laughs> can't do it either. Like you have to. It, it's actually math. It, like you know, uh, what was it two weeks ago that um, you know the the NASA landed that probe on on Mars and they, they said that they. I mean, I don't know how many million miles away it is from Earth, and they got this thing to land. The the target landing spot was like the size of a dinner plate, and they nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> from so many million miles that's actually what pacing a marathon is it's that hard to do it perfectly it's that precise and it's not something a horse or a cheetah or even an inexperienced runner can do like you have to be 
smart, but it's a, it's it's mathematics, but it's a perceptually based math. Like you know, if you're 11.33 miles into the race, you need to know is my level of exertion right now appropriate for 11.33 miles into a 26.2 mile race? And a smart, experienced, good pacer knows that, and they know exactly how they should be feeling at, at that point. And it's not easy. So yeah, to the point of it not being easy, um, how does somebody hone that skill? Is it through more racing? Is it through just more awareness? Is it um, training at race pace? What's the suggestion there? There's no substitute for experience. Um, There's been plenty of research showing that there's a a familiarization process. Like there's one study, I I think I cited it, maybe I did in How Bad You Want It, where they had uh, two groups of cyclists on state their stationary bikes, and they did they were, they were doing a simulated time trial. One group was told the the, dis, the distance ahead of time. The other group was not. So it was kind of like a little bit like CrossFit, except they were blinded all the way through. Yeah. They were they were never at any point <laughs> told uh, you know how long the time trial was. So obviously the cyclists who knew so they repeated it four times. The, the cyclists who knew the distance up front and also got feedback as they were performing it, their performance, as you would expect, was the same in all four trials because they weren't getting fitter. Um, There was, you know, separation so they could recover. But the, um, you know, the the blinded cyclists, what what would you do in those circumstances? You're going to be conservative, right? Like just in case it's much longer than, you know, it probably likely is. You're not going to start off at a sprint if it's going to be like a, you know, a a 10 mile time trial, whatever. So, you know, they were told that the distance would be same in all four trials, but they were never told what it was or given any feedback while they were doing it. But o- over those four trials, the blinded cyclists performed better and better and better until in the fourth and last one, they perfectly matched the performance of, of the ones who'd had information all along. So that shows two things that there's no, no substitute for experience. And, and the pacing really is done by feel. Because again, the ones who were blinded, they never had data. They never had feedback, and they were still able to match the performance of. Um, so that's it. You, you, you need experience, but I think you can accelerate the process with a kind of intentionality. And you know, I started running in 1983. You know, when I was 11 years old, we didn't have all these wearables and all this technology. And now, you know, today's athletes, especially the ones who start as adults, are so device dependent. And it really stands in the way. I mean, those things are useful, but they become a crutch and they stand in the way of people getting attuned to their own bodies. So I work on this a lot with the athletes I coach and I, I come up with little ways to sort of gamify workouts so that they're more mindful to how, how perception and um, I'll, just, I'll give you just one quick example. Say you're doing um, interval an interval set and it's 10 times one minute. And you have a you know a target intensity, but it's not super precise, right? It's just it's like a narrow range that you want to hit for ten times one minute. So in the in the first one minute, let's say you know you cover a certain distance, and then the game becomes to to match that exact distance for every subsequent time trial, as long as the distance is like was at the right target intensity. So the, the exact number doesn't really matter, but you decide it matters, and you try to lock yourself to it. And you can get scary good at this. Like at first you're, you're not, but you'll see the improvement. And what you're doing is you're sort of calibrating perception of effort to external reality. And that's really how you ultimately master pacing. So um, two questions pop out of that. The fir- um, so do you, when you program for athletes, is, is it based off of 
perceived rate of exertion more so than um, time ranges or distance ranges or is it is is it is it, it is it run um, uh, to, to your example is if it's um, four by um, three hundred meters or whatever it might be I'm sorry ten by three hundred meters like your one minute thing is that and that's our speed I, I realize that we're not uh, right um, is, is that do you say at um, a perceived rate of exertion of a 7.5 versus um, 300 meters at 57 seconds? For, for that type of session, I, I'm more likely to give them a, a target time for a split, but it is session specific. Like for, for most of like the, the, the bread and butter, butter, like, you know, basic aerobic training, that's perceived mm. effort. Um, but for, um, you know, because some workouts are supposed to be done at a specific race pace, right? So it could be, you know, you know, five times two kilometers at 10K race yep. pace. Well, you want to get, you yep. want to get practice at race pace in that example. So, so it really depends. Like, you know, if it's a set of hill reps where pace kind of goes out the window a little bit, um, that will be RPE. So you know, it's situationally specific, but even when I am giving, giving them a, a target pace, um, you know, there, there's still a, a crucial role for RPE there. You know, I, I tell athletes all the time, there's the letter of the workout and there's the spirit of the workout. When I give you target mm -hmm. times, those are educated guesses about what's appropriate. It's important for you to know what the purpose of the session is so that if my guesses are not good, you're able to actually discern that and make your own adjustment on the ground. Everyone I coach, I coach re remotely. Like I'm not standing at the side of the track with a stopwatch, you know, saying, you know what, you don't have it today. Let's dial it back a little bit. Like they need to be able to make those decisions, but it's actually better if they can make it, make those decisions for themselves. Um, you know, I had an athlete I coach who just did that. It was, we have this critical velocity, which is your, your 30 minute sustainable speed. Um, and, uh, she, she was four days past a race and I just turned out it wasn't, wasn't fully recovered, wasn't quite ready. The number I gave her, I thought was a little conservative accounting for it, but she, she had a little more fatigue in her legs left over from the event than she thought ran one interval at the goal pace, practically died doing it and just was able to make that adjustment. And for me, like that as a coach, that makes me happier than someone who treats the, the target time like gospel and, and practically kills himself to, to hit the time no matter what. That's what we were talking about earlier with the smart athlete and you know willing to be able to make the adjustments right. and not necessarily just be so bullheaded that you that it's um the that you're just following the letter of the workout. I love the letter versus the spirit. Right. That's really uh really cool language um I'm stealing and yeah. um <laughs> I, I just so you know, I, get, I, I give you credit three times and then after that, it's mine. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, most, most of my ideas are, are that's, that's all we do, right? Yeah. You just put it through your own, it's your own, <laughs> you, you grab them from everywhere. Um, speaking of uh, that actually is, um, I, you know, the, the title of the book, you know, that, that we're referring to the one that, um, you know, how bad do you want this? I, I really resonate with this idea of um, at some point during this training session or during this race, consciously or subconsciously, that question is going to pop in your head and it's going to be, how hard are you willing to push through this? And I like the idea, I, I think it's, your words are somewhere along the lines of like, 
can you make this bigger than it is? Can you almost like trick yourself? I don't know if it's trick yourself. It's, but it's, can you make it, can you give yourself a purpose beyond this? If it's just like, so I can say, so I can do it. That might not be enough. But if you like, my livelihood depends on this. It's my reputation. This means everything to me. Um, I think that's really cool. Um, but I'm also interested in, um, cause there's this other aspect you have in the book, which is like, uh, like let it go. Like it doesn't matter that much. Like the example right. of the, the right. triathlete that put all this pressure on her and then she went to the mountains and the coach was like, just do more yep. and more and more. So how do those two principles right. kind of like work together? Like it matters so much versus like, let it go and be light about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And that gets exactly to the idea that there's more than one tool. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like there could be two tools that seem like they contradict each other. Like, like, wait a minute, how could both, how could both of those tools be be distracted, but be focused? Like, right. Exactly. (laughs) But you know, it's really true. Um, You know, so on the motivational side, I would say, um, you know, the, the more, and I'll just go with my race example, you know, the, the more a race, the more the stakes of a, of a race feel like life and death to you, literally life and death, the, the, the harder you're going to be able to push. So, I mean, in, in point of fact, you actually can't trick yourself. Like, you know, I mean, well, God bless you if you can, I guess, <laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think many people can in that way. But, but what most people end up doing is they, and, and you sort of hinted at this, that they connect, they, the, the race becomes symbolic of their deepest mm. values. Um, so Love for me, that. it was, you know, and I, I get into this in, in, the, in, in the book, I talk about my own struggles with mental fitness. Like I was a head case, classic head case as a high school runner. Um, and you know, I, I was weak, you know, I, I thought of myself as a coward. Like I used that exact word. That's what I called myself. Um, and, and so for me, uh, like finishing races, knowing I had left it all out there became my way of bootstrapping toward becoming the man I wanted to be. Like I, I wanted to change. I didn't know. I didn't want to run a faster marathon. I wanted to change how I viewed myself. Oh, I love that. And that mattered, that mattered a lot. And it really got me to invest myself uh, in the process. What's a little bit different from that, and it, it, it's, it's a different tool, but the same athlete can use both of them, is um, not, not, actually, um, not actually having how you view yourself dependent on formal success. So, you know, what happened with Siri Lindley is like, it's, you know, she, 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 she choked, she became a choker because if she couldn't qualify for the Olympic team, she thought no one would respect her or she wouldn't respect herself. But that's different because it's making your, it's making how you be yourself dependent on things you actually can't control. Like, you know, if, if three better athletes than you show up and execute, Hey, you're not going to the Olympics, you know? And you may have had the best race you could possibly do. So two different things. Um, and they, they look like a contradiction until you really drill down and see, oh, oh yeah, no, they're, they're not quite. So what you see with champions all the time is like when they get to that point where like, hey, I know I'm great. <laughs> you 
they they can set a goal, you know, to to win the championship, but they're also they can also just they know they're great whether they win or lose. You, you know what I mean? So it's like they want it, but it, they they can also just have sort of a light grasp on that goal. You know, I I love how like you know when when locker room reporters talk about, you know, say before the NBA championships, they're like, Oh, we just got back from the Lakers locker room. And I can tell you they're loose. Like, what does that mean? It means exactly that. Like, do they not want to win? Do they not care? Is that why they're joking around? No, they know they're great. They want to win just as much as the, you know, the less experienced team uh, that they're going to beat, you know, four games to one, but they're like, we're great no matter what, and we can have fun. We can actually want it really bad and also have this kind of light grasp on, on the goal. So, oh, um, so that gets me so excited. (laughs) So I love, (laughs) I love this. Um, so I, what we believe is the, the foundation of athletic development is the development of your character. And that doesn't mean like you, you're, you're polite at the dinner table and you walk old ladies across the street. It means that you truly know who you are. It's like this self-mastery aspect to it. And what I, the words that you're giving me, which I, I, I'm, I'm really excited about, is that when you can turn it into a life or death thing, you will push harder. You will stay on the coals longer. But the life or death thing is not am I going to win the championship or not? It's like, am I going to solidify my own view of myself? And if you're trying to prove to yourself that you're going to see yourself through a prism other than the coward, like that means a lot. And you will go through a lot of quote unquote pain, uncomfortability, discomfort, um, whatever it is, if it means that much to you. And one of the things we talk about with our athletes, and I regrettably actually wrote a chapter about this in my book, saying that passion was one of the, the tenets that's responsible for all great athletic achievement. And I've since realized it's not. It's, uh, passion is like the price of admission. Like passion is when people are, are excited for you. Like, Matt, I'm so happy that you found out your passion, that you're writing books about endurance. Like passion, <laughs> passion, passion. Whereas obsession is where people like get worried about you. Like they're like, Matt, like, you're tipping over the edge, bro. Like all you do is talk about this like pain cave stuff. And it's like, we're worried about you and all you're doing is running. Like, well, that's what the greats do, right? The Kobe Bryant's and the Michaels and the Phelps's and all those guys. Um, This level of obsession, I love the, the idea of this obsession to prove to yourself and it becomes a matter of life or death that I am the type of person that. And that becomes the the pass fail that becomes the thing we're chasing. And that's the thing that keeps us on the coals. Um, when, when we walk through it in that perspective, you, you say it's kind of like you could be kind of can become light because it's within your control now. And you can be in the Lakers locker room and they're like, they're right. so light. And that looks like confidence. What is your, what's your take? What's your, um, how do you define confidence and how do you talk with your athletes about confidence? I think the biggest misconception about confidence is that you can manufacture it. Um, and what you see all the time when you actually look at <laughs> confident, you know, you know, confident athletes is that it's actually it's confidence is almost always realistic. So you have to mm, prove yeah. to yourself 
that you can do something to be confident that you can do it. You know, you, you can't you can't be so confident that you can fly that you can go up to the you know the, the roof yeah. of your building, jump off and fly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what, what um so there are two levels to it. So, you know, evidence evidence is the foundation of confidence. So um you know, as a coach, what I what I do with athletes is that I, I try to yes, I'm training them physically, but also I view every, especially every key workout, as an opportunity to build their confidence, and, and that's why I really don't like to set athletes up for failure. Because is it really is it the end of the world if if you have a disappointing workout? No, but if you have too many. You, you don't have enough success experiences like like to build confidence as you go. So I, I, you know, you have to push hard and you have to risk failure, but you you also want to set athletes up for consistent success because then they're they're proving to themselves that they can do whatever it is that they end up wanting to do. Now w- what you will sit, see is that um, to you know to a limited extent you can manufacture confidence. So if you have like say two athletes and they they've both had the same level of success in their training, one of them might gain more confidence out of the same experiences than another. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where you get into like sort of the, the pure mindset aspect of, of confidence. Like what you see with, especially like, you know, you know, the, the champion's mind type of athletes is that they shrug off their, their disappointments. Um, and, and, and but all they're really doing there is is being more realistic. Like uh, I I tell athletes all the time, you can't get lucky in a workout. You you should judge your fitness. You should judge your your ability by your best workouts, not by your most recent failure. Because you can't outperform your physical ability. You just can't. So your your it's actually your best workout that shows you how fit you are. So. Honestly, if you have three bad workouts and one good one, ignore the bad three workouts wow. because like you're, yeah. you, you couldn't have done, you couldn't have done that best workout. Um, if you weren't physically capable of doing it, like, you know what I mean? It wasn't a miracle. Right. You didn't get lucky. Like your body had the capability to do that. And that's what you see the champions do. Like, again, you don't want to have three bad workouts for every good one, but, but the people who gain the most confidence out of the same training they understand that, you know, and it is, it's not, again, it's not a matter of like being like, like sort of blindly optimistic. It's actually true. You know, it's actually just realistic. It's like, you know, I couldn't have done that unless I was capable of it. So who cares about, you know, tomorrow's bad workout. So, um, so these key workouts, can you just, um, from a coaching perspective, like how often do you program key workouts? Um, when you say you're setting people up for success on them, does that mean that you're, like, like not maybe tapering for them, but like making sure that people are primed and ready for them. Um, what are, what are key workouts? What, what would be an example of a key workout? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the endurance world, um, you know, it's like we have this 80, 20 rule where 80% of training is low intensity. 20% is wow. we could, we could, we could learn a lot from that because ours is like (laughs) like 99 and 100 in the opposite direction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 99 yeah. to 99 yeah the funny thing is like you can go a lot harder 
if you go easy most right. of the time. <laughs> so like me, I love running fast, but what enables me to really crush a key workout is that I spend most of my time not running fast. Uh, so it's like sort of you, like the slow stuff is the broccoli you got to eat in order uh. to get the dessert of, of running fast. But anyway, so in our world, that's like the key workouts are those 20%. So, you know, if you're like a six or seven times a week athlete, where you, you're, you have six or seven workout uh, training sessions per week, probably two of those are going to be cool. Uh, key yeah, workouts. If you're more like a that, – That's very consistent with what we like talk about as well. Like Like go hard once a week type thing. Yeah. Same, same, one to two times a week, depending on age yeah. and experience and other stuff. Um, okay, so with this confidence thing, um, it, se- it seems like there's also this other um, level we should be aware of, which is overconfidence and people lacking the ability to brace for workouts. Um, and I see this a lot. Like, uh, like this is the thing that since I've read your book has probably been the most evident thing for me is where people are, they don't realize how hard it's going to be. And people can go into workouts overconfident and then they basically get, it's that saying like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, right. but this idea like of understanding how hard the effort's going to be is so beneficial to your performance on, uh, coming out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that this study uh, that I'm about to describe came out after that book came out, I believe, but there was a, a great study on that phenomenon um, where they had people, I think it was like hold a plank for, for time. Like it was like, uh, hold a plank as long as you can. And before they had people, they had people do it twice. Um, and before the first one, they, they had people, um, they asked like, how long do you think you can hold this plank? And so everyone you know, made their guesses. And then they, they sort of correlated people their you know, their sort of what they thought they could do with what they could actually do. And then they got a chance to repeat it. The, the ones who had, um, like a little bit of self doubt, uh, going into it were actually the ones who improved the least or changed the least from, from the first plank to the, the second. So you, you had, <clears throat> you had some who, uh, thought, oh, I can only hold a plank two seconds. And, and you know, maybe they could hold it a lot longer than that. And you had some who were like, oh, I could hold a plank for 24 hours. And then they only hold it for two seconds. And then some were like really close. And the, the ones who were really close uh, changed the least from, from, the, from, from the first to the second. And what that study showed is that um, if, if you – Basically, it, you'll you'll never try harder than when you expect to be trying as hard as you can. So if you're overconfident, what you walk into is a situation where like, oh, my God, like I'm a little out of my depth here. Like I thought I could hold this plank for 24 hours and like it, it ain't going to happen. So what happens is it doesn't really matter how long you can hold the plank. It's like, can you actually stay on the coals longer? Like, can you actually perform closer to your limit? And people who are overconfident, that's the problem, is that when it, when it starts to get hard, they crumble. Whereas if you have a little bit of self-doubt, like realistic self-doubt, then, then you're like, well, I'm ready for a challenge. I love that. And, and, and so that, you know, those people, you know, they, they, they ended up performing the same in the first and the second one because they had actually tried harder in the first one because they had a little bit of self-doubt. 
realistic self-doubt. Yeah, I love the I'm ready for a challenge type thing. We One of our sayings is, you know, expect adversity and expect to overcome it because we want you to know that this is going to be hard. Like our sport is hard. Like, like, hi, it's hard. Um, um, and what we saw, what I've seen is like, even like the super highest level. And, um, so we had a, um, stage one of the CrossFit games last year was done because of COVID protocols in people's gyms. And the hardest workout of the whole thing was this workout called friendly Fran. And we had an athlete that watched other people that did not make the games do the workout. And this athlete, the people that they watched went unbroken and crushed it. So because of that, so in, in your world, it would be like, imagine like they were doing this hard, really hard course and they ran it in, you know, um, sub five minute miles. So they're like, oh my gosh, I'm here. I qualify for this. I know I'll be able to do it for under faster than they did it. And when this athlete got into it, it was so much harder than they expected that even though they had the capacity to do that, they, I don't want to say melted, but so drastically underperformed because they weren't ready for it because they overshot, they undershot the difficulty of the task. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. As, as people become more, and you've used the word a couple of times now of like aware, like in the intention aspect, but as people become more aware of this fire walking mentality, is there... So I kind of experienced this myself is when I read the book a little bit, it's like, you get really fired up. Like you, you get really fired up. Like, all right. Like, cause you get this, all, a lot of this extrinsic motivation and you get, um, kind of like, I, I want to be this mental beast. I want to be like all the people that you reference. Um, is there kind of the opposite of like a Dunn-Kruger effect where you like, now that there's so much awareness to this, like you see the gap between where you're jumping off the coals and your possibility that actually like there's this um it almost exemplifies how bad how the gap gets even bigger in the beginning uh, right uh you know that's entirely possible like that's not that's not the feedback i, I, I get <laughs> so um, i've seen i've seen it with, i've seen it with a couple of my athletes that that are mentally tough that are very mentally tough. We expose them to more awareness about mental toughness. And in the short term, yeah. they get mentally weaker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I believe it. I mean, I wouldn't call you a liar anyway, but yeah, I mean, I, I see the potential for that. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, like there are no quick fixes anyway. So, you know, as just a, a matter of principle, I, I'm a believer that um, reality is always the way. Like, like the truth will. There's, there's, there's no substitute. Like, no matter where you're trying to get to as an athlete, you want to know the way things are. E even if it's bad news, yeah. there might be a short-term hit, but, but in the long run, you're better off just. I'll give you a weird example. Like I wrote this book years ago called racing weight and it was about like performance weight management for endurance athletes. And so I wrote it years ago. Actually it's my all time best selling book, but there's no way I could get that book published today because there's so much backlash against like, you know, focusing uh, and, and it's most of it is very well intentioned, but like, you know, people being too focused on, uh, you know, weight and appearance and like, you know, under eating is a, is a huge problem. 
in endurance sports. And, and so now uh, weight management in endurance sports has become kind of a third rail. Like, mm. Oh, we don't talk about that. And to me, that's not right. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it, there's a, there's a bit of a Pandora's box when you address that subject, but I don't think you're getting, I don't think you're doing anyone a service by pretending that weight doesn't right. matter. It does matter. You know, there are just healthy and unhealthy ways to go about it. And there are some people like given their psychology or, or vulnerabilities, they just need to not go there. But it doesn't mean we should not allow anyone to talk about it. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I just think that's yeah. true for we for we, we talk about that in our sport as well. Even like we talk about ideal body fat percentages and the optimal weight. We have the same conversations. And there is, there's this unsaid like, oh, ooh, like stay away from that. But I I, I love it. And that's um it's it's this idea that other people um so we I, I alluded to it. We are we've started an academy where we have um some of the best athletes in our sport in the world training together. And people have been so kind of concerned, myself included, about how this dynamic is gonna work. And um you reference a thing called the group effect. And everyone in our sport knows this as well, but I'd love to hear your your um some more context on it. But in our sport, it's the reason that we train in, even at the novice level, we train in groups. Like we don't have, there's no one-on-one CrossFit training. Very, very little. It's mostly for special populations. But our dynamic, we know it works best when it's done in groups. And it's this idea that if you're pulling on a rower and you're rowing a 5K, when the coach walks behind you and they see the monitor, everyone's pace ticks a little bit faster because there's eyeballs on you. Uh-huh. Um, can you give a little more context to what the, the group effect is and why it's such a psychological um, performance enhancer? Yeah, I mean, you know, human beings are social animals. And, um, you know, some of us might like to think that we're islands, you know, we're not influenced by uh, other people, but we are. <laughs> um, and I think, um, I, I think most people buy it, you know, that you can perform better in a group context than you than you can alone. But I think a lot of people assume that that the mechanism is entirely competitive in nature Mm -hmm. that, you know, when you're in a group and you know how you measure up against people around you, you're motivated, you know, to stay on the coals a little longer, dig a little deeper. And that's absolutely true, but there's actually a second mechanism that's almost the opposite, which is a cooperative element. Um, And I, I think I described a study in that book about behavioral synchrony. I think I'm pretty sure. And that, that involved rowers actually, where they found that um, people, uh, rowers who did uh, like solo um, ergometer time trials and then repeated the same time trial in a group, uh, exactly the same time trial, not only did they perform better in the group context, but they actually, they they did a pain test. Um, Mm. There are various experimental ways to induce pain that don't actually hurt you. (laughs) They don't like hit you over the head with a hammer. Um, hit you over the hand. And they actually, right. <laughs> they, uh, actually a lot of them are cold water immersion. Yeah. I've seen like put your hand um, in the ice bucket one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but, but they felt the rowers actually felt less pain after the group time trial. Um, and that's because of an endorphin mm. release in, 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 in the group context. So it, part of it is actually that like when, when that behavioral synchronous thing, like anytime you do, 
something at the same time other people around you are doing it, even if it's not competitive in nature, um, you you re you release happy chemicals in your brain, and so you're able to. That's one of those things that actually makes any given level of effort feel easier. So the competition side makes you go deeper and so and, and willing to suffer more, and then the cooperative side actually makes you actually suffer less or you know feel less uh, exertion at any given level of output. So if you want to suffer more, find a buddy. Yeah. There you go. All right. I think that's a great spot to, to wrap this up, Matt. I really appreciate it. Um, for Matt's got a whole bunch of books, more than four, I realized after he said that. Um, but he also breaches in, you know, a whole bunch of different subjects. I know you're, um, you're really big into, as you talked about the weight management and nutrition side of endurance training. Um, and certainly more than just the psychological aspect, but certainly for anyone that's, um, listened to this podcast for a while knows how much we talk about mindset and the power of mindset and how it is the base of all forget about athletic performance. It is the, you know, in terms of happiness, fulfillment in our lives, that's where it kind of the, the root of it all begins. So if you haven't, um, haven't read it already, check it out. It's, um, how bad do you want it? Uh, Matt, where else can people find you? Uh, my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. Uh, my my online training business is called 8020 Endurance, 8020endurance.com. And then I'm on all the usual social, social media sites. Well, Matt, really appreciate it. Um, and that's uh, um, hopefully we get you back on and talk about some, uh, some of your other work, um, including the nutrition stuff. Sounds right. good. I Thank enjoyed you, it. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.